Malachi 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, he will show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. We're going to spend uh, the next little while reflecting uh, on that text together. What does it mean to be a prophet? Uh, the popular definition goes something like this. A uh, prophet is a person who tells the future, right? And they usually live on a lonely mountain or in an arid wasteland, and they have long, straggly hair, and, and their eyes, you know, don't always kind of, they look through you, not at you or whatever. Uh, look, that's sometimes the case. I mean, not the mountains or desert or eyes or hair or whatever, but the knowledge on the, of the future. On some occasions, on somewhat rare occasions in the scriptures, prophets tell the people something that's to come. But the majority of the time, actually, that prophet's job is not to tell the future, but in some ways to tell the past, to tell the truth about what the people have forgotten. They, they knew it at one point, but they've forgotten it. The prophet's job often is to remind the people, this is who God is, and this is what he wants from you. So in some ways, modern pastors like myself, we have a prophetic side. Now, I don't tell the future. I stand here and I remind you, these words were written a long time ago, and I draw out meaning and application from them, but I don't invent my own content. To be prophetic is simply to speak on behalf of God to people. Now, of course, the prophets of the Bible, they operate on a different level from modern pastors. Uh, we believe in our denomination, in our church, that the words of Malachi are the word of God to us. And the words that are spoken up here, they may be true, they may be helpful, uh, but they are not scripture. 
And when we come to the book of Malachi, you may have noticed in chapter one, there's nothing really about the future. I mean, chapter three and chapter four, we will get to some stuff about the future, but even then, the details are a little fuzzy. Malachi doesn't have perplexing visions like Ezekiel or Zechariah, if if you've read those books. There isn't a lot of symbolism here like we had in, in the book of Revelation that we just studied. The main literary device Malachi is using is dialogue. Which, like, that's not very exotic. That's not very weird. Um, it, it, it's more like a screenplay where, where God says something to the people and then, and then Malachi sort of answers on behalf of the people. He's writing both sides at the same time to help them understand, oh, here's what you're actually saying even if you're not saying it. Doesn't seem like he's actually quoting real people. He's just trying to articulate, here is what you actually believe. Here is what you are saying with your life, even if you're not saying it out loud. Now, at Resurrection Church, we do believe that all the scriptures are helpful to us, that God speaks to us through them. But I think Malachi is is, is very helpful to us in the following way. Malachi writes to disillusioned, discouraged, doubting, and even bored people of God. This is a post-exile book. It's right at the end, so the people have come back to the land. The temple has been rebuilt, or it's being rebuilt, uh, but it's not all rosy. Their lives and their worship just haven't turned out the way they hoped. Their prayers have kind of gone unanswered. They are going through the motions of religious practice, but there's no heart behind it. And I think this is going to feel relevant because it feels very similar to Canada. Not everywhere, not every church, not every Christian, of course, but some of us, for some of us. But let's dive in. I want to take today's text in two parts. It's actually kind of broken where that paragraph break is between verse 5 and verse 6. But the first part will be love for the doubting, verses 1 through 5. And then we'll talk about the problem with their worship. And that's kind of 6 to the end of the chapter. But a kind of a a brief introduction is offered there in verse 1, where it says, An oracle of the word of, of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, oracle, what what does that mean? Well, oracle means uh, to lift up or to carry. And so what does that mean? If he's like, I've got an oracle, well, what's what's he lifting up? What's he carrying? I think we can understand it in two ways. Possible, it's possible that oracle means something like a public announcement. Someone is lifting up their voice, you know, lifting up their head, you know, in in a public square or of some kind to say something substantial. That's one possible meaning of oracle. The second meaning is, is that an oracle may refer to delivering a difficult message. If you think, well, what are they carrying? Uh, it could be that the prophet is saying, I'm holding something heavy for you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing something to you. I'm carrying it, but it's heavy. And of course, Malachi's message will at times be difficult, uh, as, as are all the prophets. But no matter how you take that word oracle, a couple options there for you, the next phrase clearly communicates whatever it is, whatever Malachi has, it's the word of the Lord. It's what God wants to say to his people. What we have written is God's message. The book of Malachi, it's not clever intuition. He's not like a futurist or something like that, kind of trying to read read between the lines. It's God speaking to Malachi saying, this is what I want you to go on to communicate to the people. And one more quick note. The name Malachi is unusual. Uh, It's not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. It means messenger or his messenger, And some scholars have said, well, this book couldn't have been written by Malachi because this is a weird name and no one would ever name their kid this name. You know, we don't have any other evidence of it anywhere else. Um, Generally, we take a more conservative view of the scriptures that if it says Malachi wrote it, we generally believe that. But I'll give you just a a couple ways you can take this. Perhaps it is an unusual name that doesn't necessarily make it fake. If you, you know, if you meet someone in our society and they have a very unusual name, it's like, is that a fake name? Or, no, it just that means that their parents were extremely creative. They gave them a name that no one else has. That sometimes happens. But perhaps it was a name just adopt, adopted by Malachi. 
As he got older, as he understood his calling from God, maybe as God spoke to him, he realized, oh, my, my true calling, my true self, my true identity is as a messenger. Or a third option is perhaps it's just a nickname. Everyone else is like, hey, you're bringing the message of God to us. You know, we're going to call you messenger. We're going to call you Malachi. Um, we aren't sure. But generally, I'm going to refer to Malachi as the author. In summary, here's the introduction. Um, the, the, this book is that Malachi has a message from God for the people of God, which includes us. God has something he wants to communicate. We should pay attention. So part one, love for the doubting. What's the first thing God wants the people of Israel to know? If you look at verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. God is about to confront Israel with a tough message, but he wants to remind them of his love. And when God uses the word love in, in all of Malachi, especially in the Old Testament, he isn't meaning a romantic love. He isn't meaning a, a gushy, squishy feeling. God means I have loved you in a faithful, covenantal way. What is covenantal love? It's a sacred love. It's a, it's a love that's bound by promises. It sometimes even contains blessings or curses. We'll talk about that later for those who live by it or those who break it. Our, really, our closest equivalent is marriage promises. So you stand up on your wedding day, you know, if, you, if, if you're married, you stood up on your wedding day before friends and family and you solemnly promised before God love. And not just now and then love, like, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays love. No, in, in sickness and health, you know, in riches and poverty, till death do you part love. Faithful love, enduring love. We make that kind of promise to one other person, normally in our lives, and even that, really hard, really, really difficult to keep that promises. But God is saying, I've made that promise to all of you. I, I, I've made faithful, enduring love a promise to a whole nation. He's going to love them. And in return, he expects relationship, obedience, faithfulness. But it always begins with God loving us. He keeps his promises. He isn't like a half-hearted husband, uh, but he consistently and constantly loves. And if you read the scriptures, the Old Testament is full of the love of God for a very rebellious people. Had a pretty poor track record. But anyways, look at Israel's response. Remember when I said Malachi writes dialogue? Here we go, first piece of dialogue. Verse 2. But you say, that's you, Israel, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, Malachi's articulating what's in their heart. Maybe they haven't said this out loud. Maybe they have. But to understand that response, let's take it and transport it to a marriage. Imagine for a moment a wife staring lovingly at her husband. He's looking all handsome in the kitchen one day or whatever. And she turns to him and, and she says, I love you. Now, the typical expected response of a husband would be what? I love you too. Or... Thanks, darling. Or, you know, some, some, some sort of positive response. But now imagine the wife looking at her handsome husband in the kitchen. I love you. The husband looks back at her and he says, how have you loved me? Now, you can, you can just imagine if you're married, you know, how, how that would go in your, in your kitchen, in your household. Uh, it, it's kind of a shocking response. The people are saying, where's the evidence? I want some proof. Could you back up that assertion, like, words are cheap, God? You know, how about, how about you explain to us how you have loved us? And though that feels kind of shocking when you kind of say it out loud, I think lots of us feel that way about God sometimes. That we don't, we don't feel his love, we don't, we don't sort of sense it tangibly. We read of his love on the pages of scripture, but we look around at our lives and we're like, where's the evidence? I think if we could be honest, we aren't that far away from the people of Israel. We sometimes wonder, well, in what way has God loved us? Maybe you look around at your, your grades 
or your finances or your family life or your diagnosis or your whatever. And maybe you're wondering, maybe you're wondering today, well, how does God love me? Under the scorching heat of life's circumstances, it can feel like God's love evaporates. Now, how does God respond to their question? Does he take offense at it? Is he put off by such a blunt, even defiant counter question? No. He responds graciously. He answers the question. And he gives them proof. Which, by the way, we'll talk about the proof in just a second. By the way, that should give you encouragement if you're asking hard questions of God these days. Some of us, we grew up in families, we grew up in churches that discouraged questions. They said, don't ask that. Just, just, just believe, just trust. But we see here, God is not scared of your doubts. He's not scared of your questions. He's not put off when Israel says, kind of defiantly, yeah, well, prove it to us, God. Honesty, look, honesty is often the starting point of faith. Just may as well get all your stuff on the table so you can begin to deal with it. But what is God's response? Well, I think to us reading it, you're like, wait, what? (laughs) But if you were an ancient Israelite, I think you would get this point very quickly. But we have to do a bit of work to understand what proof is God offering them? Well, God references Esau, the brother of Jacob. And very quickly, here's, here's, here's the Esau synopsis. Uh, there's Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has twin boys with his wife, Rebekah. And the older boy, older twin was named Esau. The younger twin was named Jacob. And even before they were born, God comes to Isaac and Rebekah and says, I've chosen the second over the first. I've set my special love on favor on the younger son, not the older, who would be Jacob and not Esau. And if you read the stories, you're like, it wasn't because Jacob had, had much going on. Like, he wasn't some kind of saint. He, he was all kinds of shady. He was a swindler. He, he, he was a trickster. He had a lot of issues. But for God's own reasons, God doesn't give the reasons. He just says, I've loved Jacob. I chose him. And in contrast, God says, I have not chosen Esau. Now, verse 3 of our passage says it's a little bit different. He says, well, God hated Esau. Now, You need to understand that just like covenant love is not like romantic love, covenant hate, when God says he hates Esau, it's not like normal hate. In the sense that God isn't out of control raging at Esau. It just means he is withholding from Esau any special favors or blessings. He is not including Esau in his covenant love. Now look, you're like, that still feels unfair. Okay, that's fine. I understand understand the impulse. We aren't told why. You read the whole scriptures, we are not really ever given a reason why God chose Jacob and not Esau. And look, we are still pondering this question, how many thousands of years later? Why do some believe and some not believe? Why do children who grew up in the same family, sometimes even twins themselves, they have all the same benefits and everything, and they end up in very different spiritual places? It's like we can cite a lot of factors, but there are no easy answers. We just simply aren't told. It is sort of a side of God we are not given a peek behind the curtain of. But for his own reasons, God loves Jacob and rejects Esau. Now, that doesn't mean Esau died. Esau went on to, he had a wife, had a a number of wives, um, and and he's a father. He begins a tribe that grows into a small nation uh, near Israel called Edom, which is is referenced in our passage today. Esau and Edom, Esau is the man, Edom is the tribe. And and the Edomites fight on and off with everyone. They're kind of a a, a cantankerous people. They're, They're fighting everyone, including Israel. But by the time Malachi comes on the scene, The Persian Empire, which ruled basically from like India to Egypt at this point, um, they had utterly crushed the Edomites. Edom had rebelled, they'd invaded, they destroyed all their strongholds and city. Uh, The Edomites were on the verge of being wiped out as a people. It kind of ends up happening about a century later or so. 
But what God is saying to Israel in verse 2 to 5 is that the evidence of his love, Israel said, where is the evidence? The evidence of his love can be seen by its absence in the life of Edom. In verse 3, God says, look, go look at Edom. It's been laid waste. It's the home of wild animals. Um, And even if Edom says, hey, we're going to rebuild, that's not going to happen because God is against them. God has not set his love in special favor on them. God makes the argument for his love by showing Israel what happens when it's absent. God could have taken many, many examples of all all these different nations and offered to Israel as proof, but he basically says, when I am against a people, it leads to their destruction. And because you, Israel, you are not destroyed, but you live in your land and you have a temple and you have cities, that's how you can know that God has loved you. How can you be sure? How can you know that God loves you? What if you have a diagnosis? What if you have a crisis? What if you just simply have an absence that God feels far away, you are feeling unsure of his love? You're like, I don't have a land, I don't have a temple, I don't have a, I don't have a something I can point to. How can you be sure? I think Malachi would tell us two things. He'd tell us to look back and to look around. God answered their objections how? He appealed to history. He said, he said, look back, look back at how you have fared in comparison to another nation and see my love in it. If you find yourself doubting God's love, history is a good place to begin. You can begin in the scriptures, you can begin post-scriptures. You can see how the Bible was preserved and passed along to us. You can see how the church grew and spread. You can see how missionaries and pastors and regular Christian folks brought the gospel to Canada and ended up planting churches in a small logging town on the Ottawa River. If you wonder, how has God loved me? You can look back and see all he has done to love us in history. And most importantly in history, you can look back to Christ. Over and over the scriptures say, this is how God showed his love, is that Christ died for us. The Israelites didn't have that to look back onto, but we do. And I think Malachi would also tell us, look around, and I mean that quite literally in terms of this room, that you can, if you are hearing the word of God right now, uh, that itself is proof that God is still loving his people. The fact that churches exist, (laughs) that, that, that that, that they're still around proclaiming his love and his work, it's evidence. If you made it to church today, God has loved you. How has God loved us? We can look back and look around. But let's move to part two. The problem with their worship. So God loved the people, currently loves them, even though they don't really feel it. But God has a complaint against them. If you look at verse 6, God states a proverb, or he states kind of a common sense understanding of the world. He said, you all know, you know, in brackets, you all know sons honor their fathers and servants honor their masters. You all know that. Now, that's, that's not intended to be sexist or in, in support of indentured servitude. It's just simply a statement to say, hey, all the Israelites would say, yeah, that is how the world works. If you're a son, you honor your father. If you're a servant, you honor your master. That's normal. But then God basically makes an if-then statement. If that's how the world works, and you all know it, then why am I not honored as a father or feared as a master? God's complaint is simply, I'm not being treated like God. The people are despising their duty to honor him and to serve him. And specifically, God accuses the priests of doing this. But they respond, end of verse 6, we get a little bit of dialogue. Well, how have we despised your name? God responds, 
Even offering polluted food on my altar, the priests respond back, what do you mean by polluted food? And God responds, middle of verse 7, because you say that the Lord's table may be despised. And if you go on in verse 8, it seems that the priests have been permitting people to bring blind or lame or sick animals and offer them to God as sacrifices. And if you skip down to verse 13, people are bringing animals that have been taken by violence. That doesn't mean like robbed. It means like a wild animal, you know, bit their leg or killed them or whatever. And, and they're bringing those as sacrifice. And if you look at verse 14, God says, they've been making grand promises about what animal they're going to bring. Like, I'm going to bring my A-plus goat or whatever. But when it comes time to give it, they bring one that's blemished instead. And God says, think about this problem. If you look at, at verse 8, God is asking a hypothetical question. He's like, what if you brought such a sacrifice to your governor? The, 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 the civic official in your town that you had to bring something to. What would he do? And the implied answer is like, You'd be sent home. Like, go get the right animal and bring it back here. Now, maybe you're wondering, like, what's the big deal? God is really making a big fuss about this. Why is this so important? Well, here's what's going on. God had commanded his people way back in the law when he gave it. He said, you're supposed to bring your best when you bring sacrifices to God. And they're specifically told in the law a, a number of times, don't bring animals with defects. Don't bring animals with sicknesses. Don't bring those animals that have been killed by wild animals. You're supposed to give your best to God. And that showed, that was proof that they honored God, they worshiped God, that God is more important to them than being slightly richer, you know, keeping a, a better animal or whatever. But the Israelites of Malachi's time, they've gotten into this habit and it was approved by the priests. They're going to bring something far less than their best, far less than what was required. Now, why were they doing that? If you look at verse 13, but you say, this is God kind of quoting them, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Now, do you remember when you were a teenager? If you're a teenager right now, you can just think of your life right now. Uh, if you're a teenager and you do the teenager thing where your parents ask you to do a chore around the house, you know, take out the garbage or something, and you, you roll your eyes and you give a long sigh, and all of a sudden your arms and legs just weigh like a thousand pounds and it's, everything's in slow motion. You don't know about that, do you? Uh, that's essentially, God says, that's what Israel's doing. It's like, when I, when, I, when I asked you to worship me the way you asked, they're like, ah, like a big, long sigh. They, they, you know, they blow, they snort out of their nose. It's a drudgery to them. It's, it's a burden. It's boredom. They roll their giant spiritual eyes when asked to bring a proper sacrifice. And they thought to themselves, does it really matter? And the answer, according to God, is Yeah. It does matter. Look at verse 10. God speaks. He said, Oh, that, were one, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. God says a closed temple is preferable to the worthless and insulting worship they currently offer. He's like, just lock the doors. Like, don't start. Don't get a fire going. Keep your blemished animals at home. And if you look at verse 11, the problem is, is that the, from the place the sun rises to the place it sets, his name will be made great among the nations. And Israel is not making his name great. They are treating him worse than an elected official. Their, their half-hearted worship is, is offensive. See, what's the lesson we learn here? That God needs to be treated as God or you may as well not bother. Half-hearted religious practice, that is offensive. It stinks, God says. Bringing whatever's left over in your life, 
That's not acceptable. He's a great God. He's a great king among the nations. Now, if you go read Hebrews 10, there's a long argument in Hebrews 10. We're not going to rehearse it all. We don't, we don't have time. But there's a long argument that says the sacrifices of animals not needed anymore. Christ made one great sacrifice. Uh, we, don't, we don't need the blood of, of goats or birds anymore. Our sins have been forgiven. We don't need to shed any more blood. Blood has been shed once. That's enough. So perhaps you're wondering, like, look, cool, cool history lesson, Ben. What does this have to do with me? <laughs> like, I'm not bringing my goat to church and, like, you know, you know passing it over or whatever. What's the point? Well, the point is this. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Romans 12, verse 1, a couple other passages. It all tells us something important. The, the, the writers of the New Testament say over and over, the sacrifices Christians bring to God are themselves. And so you're right to say, what do blemished animals have to do with us? Like, nothing. What has everything to do with us is this. When worship has become a weariness and a burden and a boredom and a drudgery, there's a problem. See, where in your heart have you decided, God can get by with a little bit less from me? And I'm not just talking about Sunday mornings. I mean, we can include Sunday mornings, but we got a lot more to talk about than that. Eugene Peterson, uh, the guy who wrote the message, he translates Romans 12, verse 1 this way. He says, take your ordinary, everyday life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place that before God as an offering. What is worship? It's all of that thing. Those are all the places where God wants your best. Or to put it in an opposite frame, does God get the best of you and the best of what you have? I'm not just talking, I mean, I am talking about money, but I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about your best energy, your best enthusiasm, your best thinking. Is that all laid before God as an offering? That's the question in Malachi 1. Are you just bringing what's left over? I mean, let's say you love cooking. And, you, and it brings you great joy to be in your kitchen. And like every pot and pan is out. Ingredients are just exploded all over the place. Like delicious food is just happening. What does it look like to offer that to God uh, as a first fruits of your cooking? How could you engage the gifts and love in the work of his kingdom? Or maybe think about it this way. Does all your best, most creative food only go to you? See, we want to jump immediately to questions of money, setting up the church for worship. Of course, we need to think about that stuff. But when Paul in Romans 12 tells us, you are the sacrifice, then we have to think much more broadly. We've got to think about our parenting and our leisure and our eating and our houses and our apartments. But the warning of Malachi 1 is stark. God says, I want nothing to do with half-hearted Christians. People who show up only with what's left over, only with what they can spare, only with the scraps. A church like that, God says, just, just lock the doors. You may as well not show up because I am not going to be there. Just turn it into condos. It's not a church anymore. It's pretty stark. I mean, go back to the example of Esau and Edom. God basically says, if you persist in excluding him from your life, the end point is where Esau ended. Absent from God, wandering the wilderness, in the alone, destruction. God says, I'm a great king, and I deserve to be honored as such. Now, finally, this is very important, so please listen to me. This is a crushing word. We hear the words of Malachi, and we know, I'm not bringing my best. And I haven't brought my best for a long time. 
I don't know what your week was like. I kind of had a hard week. And my week included some sadnesses and some hardships, which are, I can't tell you about. But the thing I can tell you about is that I realized I was not the person I wanted to be in the midst of them. I was impatient and harsh. I wasn't very joyful. And then I have to go sit in my office and read Malachi 1 and see that in my life is a profaning of God's name. That what I've brought is something diseased and lame. And I'm left with guilt and shame and disappointment. I mean, you read verse 14, it says, those who bring such offerings are what? They're under the curse. And this is very important, so please stay with me. What does Galatians say to those who are under the curse of God? Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Jacob, the blessing of Isaac might come to the Gentiles. Paul tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse that our sins bought by becoming a curse for us. And so listen to me, Malachi tells us the truth about ourselves, that we we regularly profane the altar and we profane the temple with our half-hearted gifts. Every day, every week, you and I, and therefore we ought to repent. But listen to me, blessed are those who turn to Christ and there receive freedom from the curse. Behind Malachi 1 is Christ saying, of course, it's you. You are the problem, but I have come that you might not pay pay for it. I'd invite you, hear the words of Malachi, but hear the words of Christ. Let's pray together. 